Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We're thrilled to have you. We're glad you're here. I'm excited I get to be here and do this today. So for those of you who are, are new or at least relatively new, my name is Ben. I am not a pastor here. I'm certainly not the pastor here. Um, so Pastor Try is out this weekend enjoying some, uh, some time with his son. So uh, we're glad he's able to get away and get a little bit of a, a break now and then and and so it's, it's my opportunity to share God's word, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited you're here. Um, you know, if, if, if you don't belong to this congregation, we, we certainly welcome you here. If you're looking for a church, there's a lot of great churches in this community. We'd love for you to find a home here, but if this isn't it, then we, we do pray that you will find a, a great home in one of our other wonderful churches here in this, this community. So we're glad you're here. Uh, what a beautiful weekend it is. Um, you know, my wife oftentimes complains to me about our local climate, that, that we just have like winter and summer, and then that's it, right? But this fall has been kind of amazing, hasn't it? I mean, we had a little wintry spurt in there, but overall, it's been a wonderful fall and a, just a, a great season to enjoy the seasons changing and to prepare ourselves for the best season to come here in a few weeks, right? I know we're all excited about that. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead. We're going to just continue plowing right through Nehemiah. That's, that's the, uh, the book of the Bible we're doing this series through. Last week, Try finished up chapter 6. We're going to go into chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is basically just a list of names, really hard to pronounce names. That's basically what chapter 7 is. So it's kind of funny that when we first started this series on Nehemiah, I, I actually thought, man, this, Nehemiah is a really cool book of the Bible. Lots of really neat imagery going on that helps us to understand God's will for our lives. And I thought to myself, it'd be really cool to get to preach at some point in this series. And then I get chapter seven. I'm like, seriously? This is not the chapter I wanted to preach out of. But there's good stuff. God put chapter seven in here for a reason. So um, we're, we're gonna see what, what he has in store for us here as we get into chapter seven. So quick recap, Nehemiah, um, was one of the captives held in, in Babylon after uh, Babylon captured and, and exiled a whole bunch of the nation of Israel. His brother comes to him and says, hey, hey, the, the people that are, that are already returned back to Israel are in real trouble. The, things are not going well for them. The walls are all crumbled and, and they, need, they need help. So Nehemiah asked for the king's permission to go back to Israel and to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So that's what he's been doing this whole time up through the first six chapters of this book. We saw right at the end of chapter six that the construction is actually complete. He has finished rebuilding the wall and it hasn't been easy. All kinds of opposition and struggle and strife, but they finally rebuilt the wall. So that gets us to chapter seven. So if you've got your Bibles, please open it up. We're gonna be bouncing around a little bit, but primarily we'll start uh, and remain in Nehemiah chapter 7. So open your Bible up. If you don't have a Bible, didn't bring you one, there should be a Bible under the seat in front of you. And if you want, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, you can just take that home with you. That can be your, our gift to you. Uh, but if you've got your Bible, please open it up or turn it on, whatever you do, and we'll start reading here. Nehemiah chapter 7. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was 
a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut out, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So, so you understand the picture of what's going on here. The book of Nehemiah actually was originally part of the book of Ezra. So, so the, the book in the Bible right before Nehemiah is Ezra. And when it was originally drafted, it was all one big book called Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's all drafted by the same person. Um, and it's just kind of a consecutive story. So it starts with, Ezra starts with Zerubbabel bringing a group of exiles back to the land of Israel. And then Ezra brings people back, and they start building the temple. And, and then Nehemiah follows with a third group of people. Um, and so during that whole time, initially they rebuilt, the people that were around there rebuilt the temple. But you got to understand that the reason they had to rebuild the temple and the walls is because it had completely been destroyed. It had been, been torn apart, burned, and it was just rubble and debris and char. That's, that's what the city of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem looked like. So when the exiles returned, they weren't inhabiting Jerusalem because there was nothing there but rubble. So they were inhabiting the towns around there primarily because there was still something left of them and it was easier to rebuild their homes there. So they rebuilt the temple, but now the temple, while it was, it was a finished product, was surrounded still by rubble. And there were just a few people who found homes within Jerusalem. And so even after they rebuilt the wall, now you've got a temple, rubble, and then a rebuilt wall around it. So it was basically an empty city prepared for people. Building the wall was the task before Nehemiah. That's when we think about the book of Nehemiah, we say, what was Nehemiah, what was it about? We would say, well, it was about him rebuilding the wall. Well, if, if that was it, then the book of Nehemiah would end in chapter six because the wall's done. But that's not it. We've got chapter seven through the end of the book of, of more information. And so it's not just about building the wall. And we're gonna understand what that is. So the wall for Nehemiah was merely a task within a greater mission. And what we see at the beginning of chapter seven here is Nehemiah understood that. So when we look back at those first verses, we see in, in verse one that the task is complete. The wall is built, the gates are hung, it's done. But we see in verses two through three that there's more work to be done, that the, the mission, accomplishing the mission requires more work. So there's people being set up to take on specific roles, to, to guard the wall that's now been built. Building the wall alone wasn't enough. There's more work to be done to, to complete the mission. Uh, and then in verse four, we, we see that the city was void of people. And the reason that's significant is because that brings us to what the mission was. Nehemiah's mission was not merely to build a wall. His task was to build a wall, but the mission is to gather God's people, 
to bring God's people together in unity and glorify God through their worship and their fellowship. That's the mission. Now, if we think in terms of, of us today, we look at the wall over here, we see our mission is making disciples of Jesus for God's glory and our shared joy. So we're making disciples. We're bringing God's people together. That's how we do that. We make disciples. We love people. We share God's word. We instruct people and we encourage them. That's how we bring God's people together under the unity of Jesus for God's glory and our shared joy. That's the mission. That's our mission. And that's parallel to what Nehemiah's mission was to bring God's people together so that they would follow God's prescriptions for their lives so that he would be glorified. I think oftentimes in our lives, we confuse the task and the mission. We get so task-oriented that we focus just on the task and forget its eventual purpose within the mission. As we continue through Nehemiah here, the next verse is verse 5, and he says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Now, I don't want to disappoint many of you, but I'm not actually going to read all these names. And I know Phil was really looking forward to me giving that a shot. I'm not going to do it, though. All right, so, so here's what we see here. God put it on Nehemiah's heart to start to focus on the people. So keep in mind what Nehemiah's role is. Nehemiah is kind of the leader. He's the governor, if you will, of the nation of Israel. Now, we saw earlier there that he, he appointed it says, my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. Just so you know, there is some confusion about whether or not that's actually one person or two people. There's a lot of scholars that believe Hananiah and Hananiah, where it has both those names, is actually just, we're just talking about Hananiah. We're just talking about uh, Nehemiah's brother, who initially brought him the news back in Nehemiah chapter 1. Some people believe this is two different people, kind of a partnership here. I don't know the answer. It doesn't really, doesn't really make a difference, but Nehemiah appoints somebody to be governor or leader over the city itself, while Nehemiah continues kind of the, the governorship of, of all of Israel. Still subject to King Artaxerxes. But God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Now, what you'll notice is verse 6 through the end of this chapter is actually just copied and pasted from Ezra chapter 2. If you go back to Ezra chapter 2, you saw Ezra wrote this exact same thing. That's where this list came from. So back when these exiles first came to Israel, they put together this list of people. And Nehemiah has grabbed that old list and he's reciting it here. He's recalling who had already come. He's recalling who the initial Israelites were that came to this land to re-inhabit it. So who would this be? This would be the people who were bold enough to say, you know what? Let's go back and rebuild. Let's go back. Let's leave this new home where we've been given comfort and 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 where there's wealth. Let's leave that and go back to this destroyed land because it's our land. It's what God promised us. 
So these are people of faith, these are people bold, and these are people who God has called to go back and rebuild his, his, his people. That's what this list represents. Now, here's the list. Now, again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but these were the people, verse 6, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. And so, then it continues to talk about who these people were. Now, what's interesting is when you get all the way down to verse 61, it says, The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And because of that, down in verse 65, the governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should rise. So these people who came with the original group, they couldn't prove their descent. They couldn't prove their bloodline as Israelites, so they were excluded from some of the acts of worship. We're going to talk about why that's important. Okay, here's the thing. When I read through this, I just want to kind of skip to the end of it. It's pretty boring stuff if you just read through this. But the, the full confession here. So I, I was going to skip most of chapter 7 and primarily preach out of chapter 8. You want to know what chapter 8 is about? It's about the people reading God's word and loving all of God's word and longing for God's word. And then I started thinking to myself, if that's the focus of chapter 8, how can I skip over God's word to get there? It all has to matter. All of God's word matters. God put this really boring list of names in here for a reason for us. So we've got to, we can't just skip it. We've got to understand that there's purpose behind it. And let's figure that out together. All right. Nehemiah's task was to build a wall that was within a mission. We have tasks in our lives. Some of those tasks are for today. Some of you might have a task like, today I'm going to mow the lawn or whatever it is, right? Uh, some of your tasks are for a season. I'm going to teach children's church. Some of your tasks are for a lifetime. I'm, I'm, I'm married, right? You're building your marriage might be your task. Might, that might be your, your Nehemiah's wall. might be your marriage or your family or your sobriety or your career or, or whatever it is you're doing today. These are the tasks God has given us within the greater mission. So what I'm telling you is whatever that task is in your life, whatever it is the thing you're building or ought to be building, don't lose sight of the fact that that is just a task within the greater mission. Keep looking over here. Memorize that thing over there. That is the greater mission. Your marriages, whether or not you're teaching children's church or not, how you mow your lawn, what you do at work when you go there, they all need to fit in with this greater mission. Tasks. We're going to see from Nehemiah here that when we're given a task, when we have a task before us, we want to, number one, take on tasks that are ordained by God. Take on tasks that God has actually called us to, that God's actually doing, and that we can be a part of his work. Number two, we want to take on these tasks with the authority of God, 
with God's authority, not our own authority, not our own power, strength, wisdom, but trusting God to help us prevail in our tasks. And number three, we want to make sure we're doing our task for God's purpose, mission-oriented. Whatever task we're doing, we want to make sure that we have the big picture in mind for how that task fits into that big picture. All right, so let's, let's, let's try to understand each of these steps a little bit better here. Nehemiah sought God's direction before he ever took on this task. When we go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, we saw that when he received this news that his people were, were struggling, he immediately went to God in prayer. God bless me in this. God lead me in this. And we saw that God prepared the way for him to go back. So we understood, Nehemiah understood that he was taking on this task at the direction of God in his life. In Luke chapter 10, we see this story of Jesus visiting these two sisters, Martha and Mary. And as he's visiting them, Martha is just busy, busy, busy serving, preparing food, setting out the table, um, doing all the things that it takes to host a party, if you will. While her sister Mary is just sitting with Jesus, talking, listening to him, hearing him out. And Martha becomes frustrated. She says, Jesus... I'm doing all the work, and Mary's just sitting here listening to you. Please tell her to get to work. And Jesus says, oh, Martha, Mary understands what is most important. Mary understands that this is a time that at this moment is not a moment for her doing those tasks, but to do this task, to hear me out. There's nothing wrong with what Martha was doing. She's doing a good task in her service to to prepare everything, but it wasn't the time for that. Oftentimes in our lives, the tasks we want to take on, there's nothing wrong with the thing we want to do, but it doesn't work if it's not God's timing for that task to occur. We've got to make sure that what what we're digging into is led by God and that he wants us doing that specific thing at that specific time. This takes many forms in our lives, I think. I, I, can, recall, I can recall many years ago, uh, being, when we were in Guam, I was asked by the pastor to lead an adult Bible study. And I hadn't done anything like that before. I'd led some youth group stuff, but I hadn't ever led an, an adult Bible study. I'm like, no, I'm not sure I'm prepared for that. He says, no, I think, I think you'll do great. And, um, and man, it went really well. It, it was just like God certainly blessed that, that class, that study. And it just went super smooth. And I was so grateful that, that uh, and, and, I, and I knew it wasn't by my, I had no training, I had no expertise, I had no um, you know, particular calling in my life before that that I felt, but, but I know that as each class went along, God had prepared me for that specific thing. And I remember thinking, man, maybe I'm actually pretty good at this. And so, so then I thought, I'll do this again. And I did it again, and it just was terrible. It just didn't go well. And, and I realized that God sometimes calls us to a task, and by his spirit gifts us to succeed in that task, but maybe another time, if, if he's not calling us to it, we're, we're not gifted to accomplish it in the same success. So be sure you're tuned in to what God is calling you to at that moment. So that could be 
That could be leading a, a small group. That could be teaching Sunday school. That could be discipling someone one-on-one. -on -one. These things are all important tasks, but make sure before you engage in them that you're following God's prompting. That doesn't mean you're sitting around on your butt waiting for God to strike you with lightning and say, I have a task. Don't wait for that. That's not gonna happen. But you've gotta be in tune with God so that you can understand his prompting and his leading in those areas. Whatever your task is, do it with God's authority. So you recall in these previous chapters of Nehemiah, when he would face opposition, whether it was from Sanballat and Tobias or whether it was strife within the nation of Israel, he would always remind the people, our God is awesome. Our God will help us prevail in this. Stick to the task. We're protected by God's strength and God's overshadowing. And that is true in all we do. If God calls us to a task, God is going to empower us to succeed in that task. Now, when I say succeed in that task, sometimes that looks different than what we expect. But just trust that when you are doing what God calls you to do and you're submitting to his authority, it's going to go well. So in... Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, we see a, a really neat example of this. Little, little, little David, right? Just a little dude, a kid. The nation of Israel is, is in this battle, the standoff with this giant named Goliath. And it's a one-on-one -on -one challenge. Goliath says, send out your best warrior. Nobody from the nation of Israel wants to go fight Goliath. But little David says, what are you guys afraid of? He doesn't have God on his side. We do. So David goes out. And he fights Goliath, right? You guys are all familiar with this story. But the, the, the key of this story is not that David felt like he was powerful enough, but David knew that he had God fighting for him and he trusted God's authority, God's power, God's strength to prevail over this giant. We got giants in our lives as we take on the tasks. Sometimes those giants are addictions. Sometimes those, those giants are temptations. Sometimes those giants are just the people around us that we feel like we're disappointing or that we have to um, please. These are the giants in our lives and, and we have to trust that doing it God's way, he will provide the strength and the authority to overcome the giants in our lives. Matthew 17, 20. Jesus, Jesus' disciples had tried to heal a guy who was, who was possessed by demons and it didn't work. And so Jesus healed the guy. And the disciples said to him afterwards, so how come, how come the demon wasn't subject to us? How come the demon didn't listen to us? And Jesus said to him, you lacked faith. Your, your faith was too weak. Now what is faith? Faith is trusting in God's authority to prevail in a situation. It's not knowing it because you've seen it, it's trusting it because you believe it. Trusting God's authority. They didn't trust God's authority, therefore they didn't exercise God's authority. When you rely on your own strength to accomplish a task, first of all, you're likely to fail. It's likely to not go well. And that doesn't mean it won't go well. It means it's likely not to go as God 
ordained it to go, if you're just relying on your own faith and strength. The other thing is that when you do it in your own strength, your own power, your own wisdom, you're robbing God of his glory. That's, that's the point, right? That's the mission, to glorify God, to shine his light. Whenever God calls us to something, that's an opportunity for us to glorify God. Paul says, in my weakness, your strength shines. We don't have to be gifted or strong or powerful in something to, to be successful. In fact, it's, it's when we take on something that is bigger than us that God's glory is revealed in that. And that is where we find our joy. The third thing, the third principle in our tasks is do it for God's purpose. Stay purpose-oriented. Keep that big picture in mind. Nehemiah understood that the purpose of the wall was not just to have a wall, but the purpose of the wall was for God's glory through the worship and fellowship of his people, God's chosen people. That was the point. Nehemiah thought, well, how can the people gather and worship God the way God originally instructed them to in, in our in the Torah, if we don't have this wall to protect us and keep his people safe. So in order to comply with God's will and his instruction in our life, we need this wall to do the greater purpose of God. I recall, I recall when I was in, in law school that there's this, this friend of mine who is an atheist, but, but he, was always, he was always trying to kind of justify the goodness of atheists. And I remember him sharing some, some statistics with me at one point, saying that, did you know by a study, um, the number of, of or the, the dollars raised by atheists for charitable contributions is, and I can't remember, was roughly equal or greater to the dollars raised by Christians for charitable contributions. And I, I don't recall what the statistics were, and quite frankly, I don't care. Um, in fact, generally when someone starts a conversation about statistics with me, I tune them out. So just, just know that if you're ever in a conversation with me. Um, so his point was that you don't, you don't need God in your life to do good in this world, and that is completely true. He's right. He's absolutely right. My point is the tasks we do are not about this life. The tasks God calls us to are for a, a bigger picture, an eternal perspective. So it's not about the good deeds we do. It's not about the task at hand. It's not about what that can do in someone's life. You feed the poor, and they get the benefit of food in their belly, but we're not feeding the poor so that they can eat. We're feeding the poor so that God can be glorified through that task, right? All that we do ought to be for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And the, the benefit that people receive in this life is just that, a side benefit of the mission God calls us to do. Because God uses those instances. God tells us, look, when you're, when you're giving a brother who, who needs shelter, shelter, you're doing that for me. It's like you're doing that to me. And so there's an eternal perspective to all we do. For Nehemiah, he understood that the wall was not the ultimate God's glory through the worship of his people is the ultimate. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip there. You don't have to go there, but I'm gonna read out of this. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Back to 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the point of all of our, whatever it is we're doing in life, do it for the glory of God. Now, that's not just something we like to put on a, a bumper sticker. That's not just something you should have hanging on your wall. Do it all for the glory. How, think about that. How does that apply to your life? How do you do all to the glory of God? What are you doing in your life? Whatever it is, you've got to measure it up to, is this, is this ultimately serving the glory of God? Is this ultimately pointing to God's goodness, God's holiness, God's righteousness? Is what I am doing pointing to that? If it's not, you either need to do it differently or don't do it. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out these, these not just as I said, these 72 people to go out and minister. And, and they come back and they're super excited. They're like, man, that was, that was amazing. We were able to heal people. We were able to do all these miracles. And it was just, just really exciting that we were able to do all these great things. And Jesus says to them, in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So they had a task before them. The task was to go heal people, go serve people, go do these miracles. They did that, and they were excited by that, and there's nothing wrong with that. You ought to be encouraged by the success of our tasks. But what he was telling them is, look, I get that that's exciting, but I don't want you to rejoice in the task. I don't want you to rejoice that the spirits were subject to you. What I want you to rejoice in is the eternal thing. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that I have saved your souls to glorify God the Father. Rejoice in that. The task that these spirits are subject to you and that they listen to you and you heal people, that just points to the ultimate thing. Keep the ultimate thing in mind all the time in all our tasks. So when we, when we look at Nehemiah's life, his tasks, we see that God had a chosen people. That was the nation of Israel. What's significant about that is, is to be a Hebrew was to have an identity as God's chosen people. To be a Jew meant that you were God's child. That was your identity. Now, we have kind of two sides in, 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 our, in our time. We, we can see um, to be Jewish has two meanings, right? There, there's the ethnicity of being Jewish, and then there's the religion of being Jewish, right? And we, we can look at those separately and, 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 and distinctly. They, they didn't. There was no distinction at that time. The, your identity as a Jew was that you were a God follower by blood. That was your identity before God. Without that, you were not God's people. Now we see some, some exceptions where other people were kind of adopted into God's love, like, like Rahab. She had no, no, 
Jewish blood, but God welcomed her in because she earnestly sought him. We, we see in the New Testament that it was due to her faith and her fruit that she was welcomed in. But they understood Nehemiah, and probably to a fault, to a fault, Nehemiah focused on this identity of being God's chosen people. Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we have to understand is really a picture of what it is to be a God follower. So when we look at Israel, the whole Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, this this people who are God followers, and we see this roller coaster ride that it was, and we see the standard to which God called them to, we see their failure to abide by that standard, and we see that God still welcomed them in as long as they earnestly sought him. Despite their failures, God would love them if they would seek him. It's a picture of our lives as God followers. And that's the the perspective we need to maintain. It's real history. Don't get me wrong. It's it's actual people in history. But it it was history authored by a God of creation that authored it for a specific purpose for us to draw near to him. So... I'm guessing there's not a ton of us, probably some, but not a ton of us in this room who can trace our lineage back to Abraham, right? Probably not many of us here. We don't share in that identity that these people did that allowed them to partake in the worship of God and the blessing of worshiping God. But here we are, right? How do we get from that list of God's chosen people to who we are now? Well, Christ did that for us. Christ, Christ bridged that gap. Keep in mind, these people were under the promise to Abraham and the covenant with Moses that God said, all right, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a people. You're gonna be the father of my chosen people. And then through the covenant with God's people at that time, he said, here's how you do it. And he set up this whole law system said, this is how you serve me. This is how you love me. Here's how I'll honor you. Nehemiah was focused on returning to that system. Everything he wanted to rebuild, and we'll see in the chapters following this, that Nehemiah's efforts at this point become about preserving the old law system, the old system of sacrifice and honoring God through abiding by the law. Now, we know that that fails, not because of a lack of effort in the people, not because they just didn't try hard enough, but because that was the point of it. The point of it was to show that we can't do it. We we can't live by the law, but Christ can, and, and we're allowed to adopt Christ's righteousness so that we can be God's chosen people. How do we get there? How do we get to this list of God's chosen people? Because here's the thing. There's some of us in this room that are thinking, yeah, I mean, whatever. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me because we don't have the spirit within our lives. We haven't made that decision to be a Christ follower. Some of you say, I have. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but maybe you don't really get that. Maybe you don't really understand exactly what that means to the extent that God calls us to it. So let's examine that. Romans 8, 12 through 17 teaches us that we are heirs of God, 
co-heirs with Christ. God's chosen people were his children. The nation of Israel were the children of God. And now Paul is teaching us in the New Testament that you too, you Gentiles, you people who don't share this bloodline, by placing your faith in Christ, you too can be heirs, children of God. Paul goes on in Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that this is true, that's how, that's how you make the list, essentially. That's, that's how you're adopted into this family. That's how you become an heir. There's more good stuff that I'm going to turn there. Uh, Romans 10. All right, I'm going to pick it up at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, keep this, this part super important. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. All right, there, there's an order there. With the heart you believe, and then based on that belief, you confess with your mouth. Why does that matter? Confessing follows believing. I think there's a lot of us in this world, maybe even a lot in this room, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We confess that I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. But what's our life look like? Do you really believe that? Have you made a decision to really believe that? Now, when I say believe that, think back to Try's illustration. Pastor Try, he'd put a chair up here, and he'd say, all right, I can look at that chair, and I can say, yes, that chair will hold me up. I believe that chair will hold me up, right? But that's not the kind of belief he's talking about here. The belief he's talking about here is coming over here and sitting in the chair. Now I'm believing in the chair. Over here, I'm just saying, yeah, that's a chair that can hold you up. What Paul says here is, great, even the demons do that. Even the demons believe that Christ is who he said he is. But are you sitting in the chair? Are you actually coming over here in the chair and saying, Christ, I'm going to follow you with all I have. I'm going to entrust all of my life to you to doing it your way. That's what this belief means. The confession with our mouth doesn't mean a whole lot if we're not believing with our heart. If we're not believing that I'm going to submit my whole life to who this Christ is. Matthew 7, 21 Jesus says to his disciples, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by the actions we do, but the actions we do reflect the position of our heart. And what Jesus is saying here is when you actually do the will of the Father, when you show me that you're actually believing to the degree that you're just going to change your life in a way that you'll do the will of the Father, that's the people who, when they say, Lord, Lord, that's who I respond to. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a lot of people in this world that are going to confess that I follow Christ. There's a lot of us in this room that are going to say the same thing. 
But where's our heart? Where is our heart? That's the foundation of this. That's what God is after. The fruit is what matters. Now, I'm, 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 I can't overstate this. The fruit of our lives, the, the things that we do, do not save it. There's no salvation in that. It's only, only, only by God's grace, in his love, his promise to love us, that we are saved. By our faith to trust in him, we can be saved by his grace. We don't have to earn that. We can't earn that. But our fruit still matters because it demonstrates a reflection of our heart. James, book of James. James writes in chapter two, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Let's stop right there. If you say you have faith, if you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. That's what I subscribe to. That's, that's what's on my hat that I wear. I've got a really cool bumper sticker with a, with a fish on it. So I'm a Christian, right? What, what James is saying is just saying it isn't enough. Just saying that's what you believe isn't enough. Because you might say that's my faith, but is it really? Is it really a faith in God? Are you really trusting him with your life? Can that faith save him? Isn't that interesting? Ways? Can that faith that you're proclaiming, can that save you? We know it is our faith that saves us, but can that faith save you? And James says, no, it can't. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I'm going to say it again. It's not the works that save you. It cannot be works that save you. Your works will never even come close to measuring up to save you. But what your works do is they demonstrate where your heart is, where your faith is. If you're not living your life in a way that reflects God's goodness, if you're not living in a way that you're living out that mission, then maybe your faith is actually in the wrong thing. Maybe your faith is just fitting in with a social type, right? Maybe your faith is really just just standing out in a crowd. Maybe your faith is really just in, in building a social structure for yourself. Maybe your faith isn't actually in God and his love at all. John 15, specifically John 15, 8, probably one of my favorite things in this. I, I love this. So this, John 15 is where Jesus is saying, I am the vine, right? He's saying, abide in me, live in me. Live your life as one with me. He says, by this, let me back up to verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, right? By living out your faith, by abiding in me, by walking with me, you will demonstrate that you are my disciple. As the Father has loved 
me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, hey, look, the Father sent me to do this thing. And I am walking in obedience to my Father's will. I am walking out what he called me to do. I am living out the task that God the Father sent me to do. And I'm asking you, I'm calling you to walk that out with me. That's the life. To walk this out with Christ is the life that demonstrates that, yes, I am a disciple of God. I am a disciple of Christ. That is how we live out a faith that's not dead. If we're not walking it out, if we're just prescribing to it, saying, hey, give me that hat, that's cool. I want, to, I want to, everyone to know I'm a Christian, right? If that's as far as it goes, we're not walking out our faith in Christ, then it's a dead faith. My point, here, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm getting at, to keep this all tied together. If, if we are walking out this, if we're not, let me say that again. If we're not walking out our faith, then the question is, are we God's chosen people? Are you on this list of, of the children of God who are welcomed into to God's favor? None of you should answer, no, I guess that's not me, right? The reality is maybe it's not you at this moment, but God is still calling you to that. God is, God is desiring for each one of us in this room to walk out this faith with him. God desires for every one of us to be on this list of his children who get the blessing of his love. Back to Matthew chapter seven. So Matthew chapter seven, if you recall, is where we saw Jesus telling his disciples, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. If you trusted my authority in your life, you could move mountains. Right before that, he says, everyone, or he says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He's telling the disciples, when you see the fruit of people's life, that's how you know their identity. And he's specifically talking about false teachers at that point. People who are teaching in Christ's name, they're, they're wearing the hat, but they've got a different purpose. Say, so look at the fruit of their life. That's how you know their identity. Our fruit in our life demonstrates our identity. And he goes on, after talking to him about their lack of faith, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who tunes into my commands and walks out what I, the task I have before them, there's wisdom in that and there's blessing in that. Nehemiah's task before him, the words that God placed in his heart, right? He was called to walk out his faith with this specific task of rebuilding this wall. And he did it. He did it to bring his people together. He did it to demonstrate his sovereignty in the whole world. And he did it to shine his glory. That was the purpose of the task. Your tasks. What are your tasks? What's in your life? What are you doing? What do you spend your time, your day? You're here, and I'm glad you're here. 
and you're here because God called you to be here. But your, your tasks, your God-given tasks is more than Sunday morning, right? So the tasks that you undertake throughout your day, throughout your life, the things you're building, are you doing it for this ultimate purpose? I think we can get too caught up in our tasks sometimes, providing for our family. I think men in particular, we get caught up in this task that we find our identity in how we provide for our families. If that becomes our identity, then we have robbed God of this ultimate purpose. And our identity in providing for our family becomes the, the purpose and task all wrapped up in one. And sometimes we start doing a task, we get so wrapped up in that task that we forsake its ultimate purpose. We're too, we're too close to it sometimes to see that I'm just striving, I'm just striving, I've got to provide, I've got to provide, I've got to provide. And you realize, hey, take a step back. Stop serving like Martha is and just listen to Christ. Where are you at? Is it time to move on to another task? Or is it time to re-engage how you're doing this task? If we become too task-oriented and not mission-oriented, we're going to forget the mission altogether. And again, I'm saying this. Some of us have tasks in our lives that are just not God-honoring tasks. Some of us, and what I mean by that is we're just, we're just entangled in things in our lives that there's no way that that thing that we're doing is going to honor God. We need to repent from that and walk away from that. There's activities in our lives that are just broken. And we need to get that out of our lives. If you're going to show up here on Sunday morning and praise God with your arms up and then just actively engage in sin the rest of the week or even one minute out of the rest of the week and you're okay with that, you need to remove that thing from your life. Walk away from that and leave that behind. That doesn't mean everything else is good. That doesn't mean everything else is, is what you should be doing. Everything else can be good if that's what God calls you to. But if it's a task that God has not called you to, even though it looks good and shiny, and it looks like it's serving Christ, it doesn't mean it is. We need to make sure that our tasks, the things that we're involved in, are ultimately serving this purpose. We can be so engaged in some of these other tasks that we might be leading our kids astray. Like, like husbands, if we are so focused on providing for our families that that starts to consume us, our kids see that. And they understand, they learn from us that that's the most important thing, right? We've got to understand that this has to be primary. Those of us with, with children, that's our, that's our ministry field. That's our primary ministry field is, is what do our kids see in our lives that reflect that? Are we steering our kids towards that in all that we do? And part of that requires talking to them about it, explaining to them, hey, here's why I'm providing for my family. Here's why I'm not engaging in this thing. And the explanation of those things needs to point to that. We want... In this, in this church body, in this congregation, we really want to be able to strengthen our, our lives at home, our families. And, and that takes so many different shapes. So that, that, that requires single people. That requires 
Um, that, that requires people who are divorced or maybe in, in broken households. That requires families with mom and dad and children. It requires all of this. Every single one of these different family situations that you're all living in is a field for God to use that family life, whatever it looks like for you, whether it's just you or whether it's you and 10 other people living under your roof, that is a ministry field. God is calling you to live this out. And there's tasks within that that need to point to that very thing. Are you pursuing God's glory through your task? That's, that's what I want you to leave here with. Are you pursuing God's glory through your task? Are you pursuing God's glory through all that you do all day long, every day? Back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah says that, look, I built this wall and it's a good wall, but this wall means nothing without the people. Let's gather the people. Let's bring in the people so that we can fulfill God's commandment. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting is it would eventually fail. The wall would again crumble. God's people would reject him and they'd once again scatter. What does that tell us? The success we see in this life following God does not define whether or not it was right or not to do it God's way, all right? Because here's the thing. You can pour into your marriage exactly like God has commanded you to do it, and it can still fail. It can still come apart. You can pour into your children's lives and teach them everything about God that you know, and they can still wander, right? Those walls can still crumble, but that doesn't mean there isn't a purpose to that. Because here's the thing. If Nehemiah's plan to get everything back to the way God had commanded it to be, God's chosen people living within this city wall, worshiping God through their sacrifices, through their priestly ordained uh, processes, if that succeeded, then we wouldn't, there, there would be no purpose of Christ. But it was through Nehemiah's process and the failure of that process that God could demonstrate his glory, his goodness. So in our lives, you cannot, you cannot define your success in all that you do by whether or not it looks successful to you. Because even in your brokenness, even in the brokenness of what you're doing, God is preparing a path for his glory to shine in that. And just continue to abide in what he has called you to do. Keep mission-oriented, not task-focused. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the life of Nehemiah, the life of the nation of Israel. We thank you for the lessons we can learn from this. We pray, Father, for your leading us into tasks that honor you. We pray, Father, for your authority and your strength in the tasks that we engage in. And we pray, Father, that ultimately you would be glorified in all that we do in our lives. God, I ask that uh, you would burden our hearts, convict us, Lord, to pursue you, to believe in you in such a degree that we just place our lives in your hands, that we might be adopted by you, Father, that we might be co-heirs with Christ and the blessings that that comes with. We thank you again for your word and your love. And we ask that you bless us, Lord, as we close out today. In your name we pray, amen.